temper tantrums to crying cancel culture are everywhere. In the news, on social media, and now even in our government. But what's really going on? A new podcast demystifies the panic and dispels the many myths about cancel culture. It's called Cancel Me Daddy. It's hosted by Caitlin Burns, the very first openly transgender reporter on Capitol Hill, and our very own Oliver Ash Klein, who's actually my producer here on Brave Not Perfect and one of the founding members of the Trans Journalists Association. Caitlin and Oliver Ash shed light on what they call the cancel culture grift economy, delving into the latest scandals, laughing at the most outrageous takes, and taking a closer look at whose voices are actually being silenced in these conversations. It's fascinating, funny, and often surprising show that I think you're really gonna enjoy. Subscribe to Cancel Me Daddy right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Or you might get canceled. Hi, it's Reshma. Welcome to Brave Not Perfect, the show where we break away from perfection to live bolder, happier, or more joyful lives. Today, I have a very important episode on the show. I want to share a little bit about an important initiative I've been working on. I'm calling on the new Biden administration to create a task force dedicated to passing a Marshall Plan for Moms, along with 50 other prominent women, because we need one. We are in a national crisis. Because of the pandemic, the labor participation of women is where it was in the 1980s. It took only nine months to lose 30 years of progress. Every mom I know is exhausted. When schools closed, we became teachers, nannies, tech support cooks, everything. That's why we need a Marshall Plan for Moms, a 360 plan that gets mothers back to work, not in a few decades, but in a few months. In addition to the task force, we're asking the administration to implement a short-term monthly payment to moms and pass long overdue policies like paid family leave, affordable childcare, and pay equity. Join me to talk about this important push are two incredible women who signed the letter in the New York Times. So first of all, I am so excited to introduce my friend, Dee Poku. Dee is an entrepreneur, champion of mothers and women in the workplace. She is the founder and CEO of the We Suite, which I am so proud to be a member of. The We Suite is a membership community and platform for women leaders and creators. Dee has also founded Black Women Rise, a community designed to help Black female founders raise capital, scale up, and create pathways for women behind them. She is a badass. She's been a friend of mine forever. I admire her. I love her. She's one of the first people I call when I'm cooking something up and trying to make trouble or just trying to push myself to do the next thing. So thank you so much for joining me, Dee. I am so thrilled to be here. I love that introduction. You're going to make me cry and we haven't Mm. even started. (laughs) It's so true. And I'm so excited to introduce Eve Rodsky, who is my new friend. She is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Fair Play a game-changing solution for when you have too much to do and more life to live. I love that title. It's about addressing the age-old problem of women doing most of the labor at home. Hello. It has actual solutions and strategies on how to rebalance our home lives and to figure out how to make our relationships work better. I have loved this book. It has uh, carried Nahal and I through some tough times. And Eve is just a sister. 
I mean, she is an advocate for women. She is just so supportive. And I love that I've gotten to know you over the past couple of years. And I'm so proud to have you as part of my sisterhood. So thank you, Eve, for joining me too. I know it's very unsettling to start tearing up before a podcast starts, right? Especially when we're talking about policy. But thank you, Reshma, so much for saying that. Mm, I believe it. So I've been like waiting to have this conversation with the both of you. So we have been talking about all things Marshall Plan for Moms. Both of you signed this letter that we put together uh, to the Biden administration. Both of you are activists, have huge voices on this topic. And so I want to talk about how we got here, right? We right now are in a situation where the labor participation of women is where it was in the 1980s. Like, it's crazy to think that in just nine months, you know, we were able to roll back 30 years of hard-fought progress. So much of this was happening before COVID, but COVID-19 really shined a light on this. So, Dee, do you want to start, but just like, what's it been like for you as a mom? You know, what have you seen in the WE community since March? And tell me what you think. You know, I've been shell-shocked um, over the last sort of eight, nine months. Um, in March, when the order came to shelter in place um, and schools closed down, I'm an entrepreneur. I have a son who is eight, and my world was turned upside down, literally. You know, I had to, one, think about my son, his education, how we were going to make it, you know, through this period. And I also had to think about my business as an entrepreneur. I have to make money to live. I need my business to survive. And so I had these sort of two competing, equally important things to me, just, you know, and, and so I was just trying to figure out how I was going to manage. I think that homeschooling was just one of the hardest things I've ever had to navigate. And it wasn't really about teaching my son his math. It was really about like the amount of sort of emotional energy you have to put into supporting your child when they are trying to learn. I already had a lot of respect for teachers, but that has been multiplied tenfold through this period. And so I would sit there trying to support him, trying to help him figure out everything from scratch, like how to turn on a computer, how to log into Zoom, how to download the work he had to do. And it was literally taking up the best part of my day. And yet I knew that I still had this business that was also as important to me that needed my care and attention. So I just felt pulled in, in both directions. And we were in the middle of a pandemic and we were sheltering in place. Um, it was just a lot, a lot to ask. I always say like in the beginning, it felt like you're like grinning and bearing it. And now I just feel like I've reached my breaking point. Eve, what about you? What's the experience been like for you? <laughs> I laugh because exactly, we're sort of moving from coping to adaptation, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I think what's interesting and so ironic was, you know, right before the pandemic started, I got to be in Davos. And I remember I was sitting in this igloo talking to men and um, one world leader, actually he was a CEO, uh, said to me, well, you know, you're here to talk about UN sustainability goal 5.4, right? That's the goal that's set by the UN that said that we need to value women's unpaid labor, right? That societies were going to collapse if we um, continue to build societies on the backs of the unpaid labor of women and the undervalued labor of women of color. So I was there to talk about that. And I looked at all these dudes and I said, you know, 
my wish for you, my wish for society, if you're asking me, is that you all become the BBC dad. My wish is that, you know, you are interrupted every three minutes and 42 seconds like women are, you know, that you don't push your little dudes or girls out of the picture if you are that BBC dad like that guy did in that viral video, but that you embrace care, that we don't force your workers to raise a hand to take a piss, right? That they can leave at three o'clock and say, I'm going to take my kid to soccer practice, right? And not have to hide that. And so I think what's so ironic is that my wish came true, Rashma, right? It came (laughs) true. Uh, Literally two months later, right? The invisible was literally visible on Zoom. We were all shut down in our homes. And I think what I've really been reflecting on lately was as, you know, I, I get to come together with you and D and the silver lining of being able to work in advocacy with such amazing, strong women is that my wish was too small. Mm. It was too small because, you know, in making the invisible visible is what fair play tries to do. And what I've been trying to do for nine years with amazing other women who've been doing this for a lifetime. And, And it's too small because we are now in a place where the invisible is literally visible, but without something like the Marshall Plan for Moms and long-term systemic policy changes that we're all fighting for now, nothing is going to change. And so I think that's the beauty, right? If we don't want to waste this crisis, is to say, okay, we got to consciousness, Mm. but how do we actually now take that to action? Yeah. I want to talk about that. I was was in my fitting room exercise class and one of my favorite instructors, his two-year-old always comes in and all the women kind of shout, you know, grab big sexy, which is what they call his son, <laughs> and do um, do lunges. And they love it when he fathers. And at the beginning, I was like smile and laugh. And then I started getting annoyed because I knew that if he was a woman, the same women would complain. And as much as like people have seen moms, right, live our reality. Like today, I was in a staff meeting, like literally feeding my baby. And my husband's just like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm at a staff meeting. Like I normally am. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) mothering, because I still think he sometimes is that BBC dad. How much has it really, did it change in your house, Dee? Did it change in your house, Eve? I mean, did them watching us do this change their behavior a lot, a little? Do you start? You know, I, I like to sort of write about and post about women and leadership and our sort of emancipation and our, you know, ambition. And I often feel like I'm living this double life where I'm telling women to do one thing and there is the exact opposite happening in my home. Um, And so this is, you know, my big confession (laughs) to the world (laughs) that it's not as it seems. And to be honest, I'm not alone. Mm -mm. Carol, I'm right next to you. Okay. (laughs) And so I, you know, married a man who I love and who to many of the people who met him seemed like, you know, a man who was very sort of in touch with his emotions and who everyone sort of assumed would be sort of an equal part of, you know, all things sort of, you know, home and household. And to my shock and surprise, that wasn't the case. Um, So I'm outing him here. And it continues not to be the case. I mean, you know, things ebb and flow and they've gotten better at times. But I think that the difference, the key difference is that we sort of naturally go to all of these tasks, right? Mm. So we are natural sort of 
nurturers. And so there is like no way that we would sort of sleep through a baby crying or that we would just not think about all of the, the sort of little things that need to be done to keep our kids, you know, safe and to keep our homes running. And I think that men just sort of approach this very, very differently. And I remember actually watching this Michelle Obama interview where she talked about feeling very, very frustrated with Barack, where she was sort of, you know, managing everything to do with the household and he would just get up and go to the gym. Um, you know, just without a care in the world, even though they both had these children together. And so she was like, you know what, I'm going to get up and go to the gym. Like it's that difference where, you know, I think men will just sort of, they won't change much about their daily lives. Like whatever it is that they personally want to do will take precedent. Um, whereas we put all of that first. Yep. Um, I don't know whether that's nature or nurture, but it's just the reality of what is going on. You know, I'm sad to say there hasn't been much of a change. We've had conversations. I had a great talk with Eve mm -hmm. where she gave me lots of great advice <laughs> about how and when to have these conversations and not to be emotional about it. But, you know, it just only works to some extent. And often it means that you're having to be the one to say, okay, will you do this or can you do this? They're not necessarily sort of seeing it as part of their role naturally and I don't really know how to change that and I'm really at my wits end about that mm. um, and I know that this is the case for all not just some all of the women I know who also have full-time jobs and are contributing equally to the household financially so something has to give something has to change yes like getting a check Eve talk to me <laughs> Well, I'll say, um, well, you know, Dee and Rashma, right? My household wasn't going to change until my husband said I had to write a book about him, right? Um, so <laughs> that's that's the only reason why my household changed, right? I wrote a fucking 400-page book about him. And it did, actually. And it did. And I will argue here um, from now studying this for nine years that this is nurture. This is not nature. And we know that from Dr. Ruth Feldman's research of um, same-sex men and how they can develop just as much oxytocin for caregiving as women can, right? This is 100% a nurture issue because of how we've systematized and culturally acclimated women into their roles. And that was a, a core finding of fair play. I think what Dee says is so important and resonant because, you know, private lives are so dangerous because they present so small, right? Because no one wants to talk about the home. They think that um, this one man in White Plains, he told me he was divorcing over a glue stick. You know, I thought I was divorcing my husband over the fact that he wanted me to be the fulfiller of his smoothie needs. And so the problem is that because, you know, we like to say, you know, the private lives are public issues, or that's what the sociologists say. And I think that's the main core finding of fair play was that we as a society, we do not value women's time. And that's why I love what you're doing so much with the Marshall Plan, because at the end of the day, however it looks, you know, whether it becomes stimulus payments for single head of households so we can avoid constitutionality issues, whether it becomes universal pre-K plus stimulus plus childcare rebuilding, um, however this task force starts to move forward. It has to happen because at the end of the day, this is all about how we value women's time. Yeah. And so I think the last thing I want to say about that is the thing that scared me the most, and it's why I chose to write to women uh, and not to men, because my mother, who's a professor of social change and community organizing, fought me on that. You know, why are you writing to women? Was the fact that we've internalized the fact that our time is infinite like sand and in hetero cisgender relationships, our partner's time is diamonds. 
Mm. And we guard it and we guard it with things like I make less money than my husband. So that's why I'm the one picking up the phone call from the school. We do it when hundreds and hundreds of women said to me, I'm a better caregiver. I'm somehow wired differently for caregiving, right? It's in my DNA. Um, My husband's better at focusing on one task at a time. Or finally, the most insidious was, you know, in the time it takes me to tell him, her, they what to do, I should just do it myself. And so all those messages are fundamentally untrue. We are not better, as one neuroscientist said to me, there's no gender difference in the brain for how we wipe asses and do dishes. But what it is, is that we've now learned to devalue our own time so that we have no time choice right. over how we use my day, our days. And that ultimately has to change. And that's why I think putting a time value, a dollar value, it's very provocative on time because that's how capitalist societies look at how we value things. Right. And so that's why I'm so behind what you're doing and what yeah. the Marshall Plan ultimately is about. Well, what we're doing, I mean, it's so powerful, Dee. Thank you for your bravery. Because I think that I too, when I feel like I speak the truth about my marriage and speak the truth about the things that Nahal and I fight about, there's a part of me that feels like, am I not being loyal? Because I do think a lot of women feel like they have to like tell the myth. I'll never forget when we both had kids, being in the park with you in Madison Square. And I remember I was so shocked when I had a baby that like my relationship wasn't 50-50 because I married a feminist. Mm-hmm. That was when I think a lot of women like us, quite frankly, who went into these marriages marrying these partners who we thought were going to do like 60, (laughs) you know what I mean? And we were going to do like 40, this shock of it. And I think that part of why this has been hard, I'll just speak for myself, is how I've learned, as our friend Tiffany has taught us, to drop the ball is by leaving, right? Like I would give a speech and you have to be on a plane so I wouldn't have to be home so he'd have to figure it out. Or I would plan a girl's night dinner, you know, three times a week. Walking out the door for me helped me drop the ball and be like, y'all figure it out, right? In COVID, you can't leave. Right. Right? You are trapped in your home with your own habits and your own, you know what I mean, gendered norms that you have been put into. And it's almost like I felt like I had regressed. And that is what I think a lot of women feel. And that's why taking our jobs away for so many women has been so painful. Um, Let's talk about policies. So today, an an amazing thing happened. I don't know if you saw the White House press briefing, but- um, Yay, I did. It was so awesome. Um, She was asked about the Marshall Plan for Moms by a guy, which was very cool. And so, look, I think this is picking up steam, and I think we're going to have an opportunity to really influence policy, some policy solutions to make sure that we are never back here again. You know, what are some things that are important to you, Dee and Eve? Dee, why don't you start? You know, first of all, I think that the three of us are sitting here and we are in a place of privilege, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really sort of important to acknowledge that we still have access to a lot of benefits um, um, that allow our lives to be a little bit better than, than they might have been. And there are so many women out there who do not have that. And that is why I signed this Marshall Plan. I think that there are women who are forgotten, unseen and unpaid. Mm-hmm. We really should be thinking about. And yes, we should write them checks. And I know that there is obviously a bigger systemic societal issue that we need to address, which is men's time is valued more than women. We've put ourselves into these gendered roles and that needs to be addressed. And yes, we should have 
language that addresses that, like parental leave. And these things are all very important. But there is a crisis right now, and we need to deal with the issue right now. And we've been trying to deal with these issues for years. Women are still in very much the same place. And so we need a sort of crisis solution. We need a Marshall Plan. And so I think that that should certainly take the form of checks. And we are not paying women to stay home. We're paying women for their work. I think that there is a real sort of difference in that. You know, and there are so many men who get to take advantage of the fact that they have a wife or a partner who stays at home so that they can go out and be successful, you know, and sort of pursue their careers. And then there are sort of families where there are sort of two-parent homes where both work and yet the woman is still bearing the brunt of the sort of household chores. And I think that we have to acknowledge that that woman is not only doing, you know, the work that she goes out home to do, but also the work that she has to sort of perform at home. And having that extra check could make the difference between her, you know, getting that extra help, being able to outsource some things. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that that money is really, really important. Um, It's not symbolic. It's about paying for our time to allow us to be all of the things that we want to be that these men get to be. That's right. And I think a lot of women of privilege are missing this point. You know, 70% of low-income families, you know, the breadwinners are women and they're disproportionately women of color. So when they lose their job, right, the whole family suffers. And many of these women need cash in hand, right, to pay for daycare, to not have to do the night shift, to not have to go on food stamps. And so Basic income is not something that we should shy away from. It's something that we need to talk about. You know, short-term payments should be in the recovery plan. Uh, They will enormously benefit low-income women and women of color. Absolutely. I mean, right now there were obviously some horrifying statistics that came out in January about the December unemployment figures where 6.3% of women are unemployed. But then if you dig deeper into those numbers, 8.4% of black women are unemployed. So this pandemic is disproportionately affecting black and brown women. And so we really need to think about how we are supporting them. And they need money. They have had to leave the workforce because they don't have that sort of extra support at home or they've lost jobs. And so we need to think about what the short-term solution is, which is writing checks. And then the long-term solutions which are the things that we've been advocating for for so many years, like you know, paid leave and affordable childcare. These things should just be a given, and they are in many societies. That's right. You know, so much press has been around how all of December's job losses were women, but all of those net job losses were Black, Latino, and Asian women, all of them. And so this situation from a labor market participation is disproportionately affecting women of color. And that's why we have to do something about it because we fought way too hard. And, you know, we still have inequity. We still have more to fight, but we we can't roll back 30 years, right? Like we need to do something about it now. Eve, any thoughts on this? Well, first of all, the other thing we have to talk about is the wage gap, right? Because if you are a black breadwinner, mother, you are now getting 44 cents on the dollar for every non-Hispanic white man's dollar, And so um, you start compounding this and you think about how do you actually get out of this hole, right? So that's why money to me is so important. The the statistic I think that keeps me up at night that uh, Dee alluded to um, is the fact that 70% 
of the men in the 1% who are making our decisions in government, in our corporations, which in a capitalist society has sort of become our government, especially when it was so dysfunctional the past four years, 70% of those men have the most traditional family structure you can imagine. They are men with stay-at-home wives. And then you think about what the rest of the world looks like and how that traditional family structure is still making the decisions for Black families where 85% of co-breadwinners or primary breadwinners are women, right? It could not be more different in the lived experience between who those decision makers are and what our lived experience is. And so I think that also correlates to some of the privilege, like you said, when people just talked about tax credits or universal daycare or childcare, those are important. But as Dee so eloquently said, that is not looking to me as someone who is trained in economics and law at the opportunity costs that have been lost this year for all those women and what it looks like to retrain and get them back into the workforce. And that requires money. And so um, I think there's lots of ways to get around the constitutionality issues around this and to look at how you give payments to single heads of households, which would primarily benefit women of color. And so there's lots of ways to do this. But I think the best thing we can do now is just say there has to be money involved. There has to be stimulus dollars involved. And it has to happen now. And a workforce is not a nice to have. This idea of a task force is a must have and we need to demand it. Yeah. You know, one of the things people ask me, as both of you know, is, you know, why moms? Why not all caregivers? What about dads? You know, what about single dads? And, you know, my response to that is like, you know, you, you cannot fix what you cannot name. And while all caregivers are important, you know, not all caregivers are facing a penalty for being parents. Mothers do. What do you think about that? You know, whenever I hear that argument, it makes me think of those who respond to the racial injustice faced by the Black community and say, but all lives matter. It's just, to me, such a sort of short-sighted way of looking at what's going on, and actually an unempathetic way of looking at what's going on, this is a crisis disproportionately affecting women, and that has for multiple decades. Like, that is the issue that is at hand, and that is the issue that we need to fix right now. Yes, of course, we care about dads, and yes, of course, the ultimate goal is that men take equal responsibility for the household. But, you know, the truth is, they are not. And it is women, it is black women, it is brown women. And so we need to support them right now. We need to put policies in place that support them right now. And simultaneously think about the bigger issues around how society works and how we sort of, you know, fix the way that we're sort of raising our children and how um, we value the time of men over women. Those things are all incredibly important. But for me, this is a crisis, and with crises, you have to deal with the issue at hand and the people who are most affected, and that is women. And Dee, I want to just add something important about that, because I think a lot of people who are trying to weigh in um, may not know the history, right? And I think the historical understanding of why this is a women's crisis is really important. One of my favorite quotes, and I'll read it to you from the National Women's Law Center, said, until at least the latter half of the 20th century, few types of work beyond unpaid care for their own children at home were viewed as socially acceptable for white women. Women of color 
however, were employed or enslaved in domestic work, including child care for other families' children for centuries. And so I want us to also remember that this is a choice, how we value things as a society. And whether I'm talking about women's time or women's work, unpaid labor has never been in the GDP. It has never been seen as work. That's why in 1986, the term was coined invisible work, because this is work done by women and women of color. But I think the idea that the fact that we have denigrated care work performed by women, right, especially women of color, and that has affected our public policy decisions, um, makes it such a crisis. And so that's why I think it's very important to center the voices of women of color. It's very important to center Ai-Gen Poo's work, which looks at how outsourcing and white feminism has been built on the backs of the undervalued labor of women of color. We can't do that anymore, right? This requires a much more nuanced understanding of what feminism really looks like. And this idea that you can just outsource your labor, we have to retire that, sort of burn that term as we sort of rebuild in Earth 2.0. Dee, how are the moms that we sweet and Black women raise, how are they doing? And how is your organization supporting them right now? You know, they are all having, you know, a tough time. I think that we've we've found a balance of sorts. Um, we've gone from sort of fight or flight to, you know, this is the way it is. And we've just sort of made peace and figured out a routine within it. But I wouldn't say that anyone is particularly happy with the state of the way things are right now. What we are providing for each other is a sympathetic ear and a sounding board. I pride our community within the We Suite on sort of really offering tactical support for one another. And so we're really trying to do that for each other. There are women who have lost jobs, who we are trying to support with sort of introductions and referrals. We're having conversations about how we're sort of navigating our lives at home and running our businesses or going to work. So really, you know, this sort of pandemic is a first for all of us. It's like our first time sort of living through something like this. And so it's just become more important than ever that we have that really, you know, strong support system around us to help us, not only with sort of the ideas that we need to sort of carry ourselves forward, but also with that support and sympathetic ear. And so that's really what we are, you know, we're trying to sort of be for each other is that sort of support system and tactical support. What about you, Ave? I mean, we know that government's got to take this on. And we are relentless uh, and we're going to make that happen. But you've put a lot of thought and energy into like how families can address the, you know, unequal burden. Because so much of this is also about culture change. You know, what strategies and advice can you give our listeners that are struggling with this right now? The truth is that if you can look at your life as one where you protect your boundaries, you implement systems and you can look at how you communicate those three things have been correlated in my data set to people who are using the words like thriving or not drowning or feeling like things are equitable in households. And this does not just lead to hetero cisgender relationships, but because I think we can learn from same-sex male identified relationships in that so many of those couples in my data set said, you guys put yourself in such a horrible box here, you know, because there's one woman and and a man in these hetero cisgender relationships. Like, how come you can't even talk about who does what? We have to have conversations about who the genetic material mm. is for our children, right? And you can't even you can't even ask your partner 
to pick up your kids from school two days a week, right? So I think um, we can learn from other types of family structures. But what I will say is that the most important thing, because, you know, fair play is really about a system, right? It's a system of how do you move to an ownership mindset from a, it's all on me mindset. And also it teaches people how to communicate based on, you know, a decade of mediation work that I do with difficult families that look like the HBO show Succession and everyone should feel bad for me because those families are really difficult. But I think the thing that's the hardest and why I, I think the culture change starts here is what happens when you think about what a true boundary means, especially in a place, Rashma, as you said, when you can't leave, right? When you're sort of stuck in the same place. Uh, so many pale and male speakers on these panels with me say, well, it just requires two uninterrupted days a week. And I'm like, well, who's guarding that time for you, right? And it's always their stay-at-home spouse or something really um, antiquated like that. At the end of the day, the boundaries piece, right? Treating our time as diamonds, recognizing that we deserve as much time choice as our partners is the biggest culture change that I wish for us. And that started with me and Seth saying, when I started to understand this was about time and I had this aha moment, it wasn't just saying, Seth, take out the garbage. It started with me looking at Seth and really my heartbreaking for the fact that he had four hours after our children went to bed to, you know, watch SportsCenter, work out, finish a PowerPoint deck. And I realized that I had no time choice, that every second of my day until my head hit the pillow at midnight was in service of the household. And so it was starting with these really difficult conversations to say, Seth, I want as much time choice as you have. If you're a true feminist, right, I want as much time choice over how I use my day as you have. That's what I want. That's true fairness to me. And to get there, it required him doing things that didn't give as much time choice to him, like putting our kids to bed, like staying in their room for hours if they were scared at night, like packing their lunches the next day. And so to me, that's the hardest part of the boundary systems and communication formula. It's that idea of us starting to realize as women that our time is diamonds. And it's really, really hard to get that permission to be unavailable. And it took a lot of years for me to, to get to that consciousness. It's powerful. I think Dean and I are still working on it. Can I add something? Yes, please add. Um, so I think one of, the, one of the most important things as well, um, as I outed myself um, on your show today, Reshma, is not to sit in secret shame. I think it's mm. so important to share these issues. I think that we are role models of sorts and there are women who are looking to us who are watching what we do and learning from us and i think it's really important to present the true facts and not the sort of instagram facts of our lives and and what's going on because then you know we're just sort of perpetuating the you know yes, the sort of same yes. ideas um, I think it's really important to have a great circle of women in your life, which is what we want the We Suite to be for women, is that you have that sounding board of women who know exactly what you're going through, who understand exactly what you're going through, and who can share based on their own personal experiences. Because so often, you know, I'll read a book or, you know, read an article that will tell me sort of theoretically how to do something, but it's so hard to use that theory and sort of apply it to your own life when it feels so different. Yeah, And it's only when you have that sort of peer-to-peer -peer support and you can really talk to people who have an innate understanding and are living your same truth and who can say like, this is how I did it or this is how I approached it and that didn't work and that didn't work, but then this did. 
And whether that's, you know, in relation to, you know, your business or career, or whether that's in relation to your life and how you're living it, and whether that's in relation to your kids and figuring out how to get your partner to contribute more. I think that having that peer insight it is invaluable. And we certainly sort of cannot go through this period alone and living in that sort of secret shame. Yeah. And I want to add to that. Nahal and I fight about this all the time, right? Who's done what? Who has more time? Because that whole point about like, I don't, like if I wanted to have a midlife crisis right now, like I don't get to, but he totally could, you know? And the thing that's made me, I think, have more rage about this is I have two boys, right? Do you have one son? Mm-hmm. And so much of Nahal's viewpoint on this is cultural. What did his dad do? And what is he doing? And men will always think they're doing a better job in relation to their fathers. And that's often where the benchmark is. So it's so important for me to not complete the cycle and for Sean and Sai to not see me do all the things that Nahal saw his mom do, right? And just, again, continue the cycle. And I think that that has really pushed me. And I, I keep trying to put it in that frame for him, too. But it's hard. It's hard. Yes. And I will say one thing. Darby Sachs, me, my, I, she's a good friend. She studies these issues for a long time. She's a professor at USC of the a center called The Changing Family. When I told her I was talking to you today and she said, you know, I want I want to thank Reshma for encouraging girls to code. Mm. And she said, and now she's helping carry the torch to encourage boys to care, right? Because you started this work, right? In a very important way. We're going to close that STEM gap. But part of it is the opposite side. What closes that beautiful heart or circle is that we get Mattel Barbies that show Barbie and, you know, her computer coding gear, that we also get transformers that transform into a baby carriage. And so I think that's where we've been lagging behind is those cultural narratives for men and to recognize that care at the end of the day, right, is not gendered to recognize the problem is, but then to get past it is to recognize that at the end of the day, we have to value ourselves as like whole human beings. Right. It's so true. And our boys have to see care as something that's not gendered and something that is powerful and important. Powerful and important. Exactly. So how can our listeners follow and support your work, Dee? And Eve, how can our listeners keep up with you? Okay. Well, for me, for Dee, you can follow me on Instagram, Poku. If you want to join the We Suite and be part of a community of women who have big ambitions for each other and for themselves, um, you can go to wiesuite.com. And same here, just Instagram. Eve Rodsky is more my personal political <laughs> um, raging Instagram. And then uh, Fair Play Life is where we just focus on the gender division of labor. Amazing. This is like the best conversation ever. Uh, I really appreciate both of you coming on. Thank you. We appreciate you, Reshma, so much. You know, the thing I love about you is that you are such a doer. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I think it probably took you like, you know, a week to sort of pull this campaign together. (laughs) But, you know, you see an issue, you figure out a solution, you figure out how to get it in front of people. You know, you're changing lives for women. I so appreciate you and I appreciate this effort. Um, And we all just need to get behind you and make it work. Oh, I love you. Thank you. And Nahal always teases me. It is true. I get mad about things and then you like have to just wind me up (laughs) and there I go. And it's often out of like rage. And it's right. I feel this like deep populist mom rage. And I know that the two of you do too. Hell yes. 
And I, could I just say one more thing about you too? That Oh gosh, what do you stop? No, but it's true. I mean, when I had a book coming out, which was so scary to out yourself, especially if you're telling a personal story about yourself and your marriage and Rashmi, you were, you're busy as hell. And you were, you always gave me time last year. And so, and I know your time is diamonds. So I just want to appreciate how much I, I see you and appreciate the fact that you took that time for someone who was launching a first book. And it, it goes back to what Dee's point is about having a network of women that all comes together ultimately for the common good of each other. That's community to me. Well, I love both of you. Thank you so much. Keep fighting. We're going to do this. <laughs> love you both. Thank you. Thank you, Reshma. You just heard me having a conversation with Dee Poku, the founder of We Sweet and Black Women Raise, and Eve Rodsky, the author of the New York Times bestseller, Fair Play. We were discussing the need for a Marshall Plan for Moms. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, make sure to subscribe to Brave Not Perfect Podcast. And I would so, so appreciate if you told a friend about it or shared Brave Not Perfect on social media. That really helps us get the word out. Hi, I'm your executive producer, Oliver Ash Klein. Tanya Zaporonik and Charlotte Stone co-produced this episode. And of course, we couldn't make Brave Not Perfect without unwavering support from Deborah Singer and Rush Sajani. 